The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Good morning. Um, I'm not Pastor Chris. Uh, My name is Ryan. Uh, Pastor Chris is actually enjoying a weekend in California with his family celebrating their daughter Lydia and his new son-in-law Andrew's wedding. So uh, we know they're having an awesome time out there in California getting a nice Sunday off. But uh, we're still going to have an awesome Sunday here at Coastal. We're excited that you all came out this morning. And like Chris said, we had an awesome uh, start with worship. Uh, But we're just going to dive in uh, to this week's message. And we're really continuing, of course, our series. uh, And we're in now called Amazing Grace uh, by looking at another type of grace uh, that God gives us that really kind of fits into that mold of amazing grace. And so today we're going to talk about God's restoring grace, right? God's restoring grace. In order to do that, uh, first off, we really have to look at why we get grace in the first place, right? And why do we even get grace? What did we do to deserve grace in the first place? And really the answer is nothing, Uh, We did nothing to deserve grace. God gives us grace because we are in a loving relationship with him, right? And this relationship is just like every other relationship, right? It's one that has to be maintained, right? We always have to be working on our relationship with God, you know, because no relationship ever really stays the same, right? You're either growing closer or, or warmer, your heart's growing warmer in the relationship, or it's getting colder, right? And you're going farther away in the, your relationship, And the same thing is with Christianity, right? You don't just become a Christian one day and then just coast through the rest of your life. That's not how it works. No, again, you're having your heart grow warmer every day or it's growing colder. And we all know those Christians, right, who have, uh, you know, got on fire for the Lord at one time, right? They became a Christian. uh, They got on fire for the Lord, started doing all this awesome stuff, and it was just contagious, right? You could tell there was something different in their lives. And then now today, they're nowhere to be found, Right? That happens to a lot of us, because we all face this dilemma you know, in one way or another. We all know the struggles we face in our own hearts daily. Right? We face temptations, we face ups and downs, we even face days when we wake up and say, I don't know if I want to be a Christian today. It happens to all of us, and it's completely normal. But the good news, right? the good news is that God offers us grace, and more specifically, offers us something called restoring grace. Right? When we blow it, right? when we walk away, when we, when we stumble, when we fumble, when we do anything that's not in God's will, he simply says, you can come back to me. Right? We can pray the prayer that was prayed in Lamentations 5.21, where it says, restore us, O Lord, and bring us back to you again. Right? Give us back the joys we once had. And that's just an awesome prayer. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Right? How do you get the joy back in your Christian life, right? You may have been a believer for uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, or, or years, or even decades, but I'm willing to bet that at some point in your spiritual walk, it's just gotten a little stale, right? Maybe you're not as close to the Lord as you used to be, right? Maybe you've gone through a trial or a temptation that's kind of led you down the wrong path, or you know, maybe you've let yourself be influenced by a certain person who's maybe not on the same path that you desire to be on. Well, what about this one? Maybe you've just gotten too busy, right? Maybe you're too busy now. What do you do? How do you get the joy back in your life? And so before we really get into that, I want to look at four common causes of why people fall away from God, right? Why their spiritual journey becomes stale. 
And again, there are many reasons why someone may backslide. You know, many reasons why that fire that consumed them when they first became a Christian, you know, it's kind of gotten dim and, and blown out. And so to do this, we're going to look at the story of Peter in Mark 14. Um, again, the story of Peter, one of the disciples, uh, original disciples of Jesus Christ, and his denial of Jesus on the day that Jesus was betrayed and then arrested. Right? And in this story, we're able to find four clear yet common causes uh, for a potential backslide in our spiritual walk with God. I mean, they're right there in the story. Right? And so some backstory. The story goes that Jesus had been in the upper room of a building with his 12 disciples. Right? They'd had the Passover, which had then turned into the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And so they're all around eating dinner, and then Jesus gets up, and he shocks the whole group. Right? He says, one of you is going to betray me. Right? Now you can just, again, imagine how much this shocked everyone. I mean, these are Jesus' best friends, his 12 closest disciples. And he says that one of you are going to betray me. And so, of course, they all, they all jump up there. You know, Lord, did I do it? Am I the one that's going to do it? You know, am I a traitor? And they're all, they're all kind of freaking out in this moment. And then Peter walks up in his kind of, you know, braggadocious way. And he says, everybody else may stumble in their faith, but I will not. I mean, you can almost just hear the confidence in, and the cockiness in his voice, right? And he says, all these, other, all these other peons, all these other losers, right, they may stumble, but not me. You know, I'm, I'm Peter. I'm not going to stumble. I would never deny you. And so that's honestly the first reason why people may backslide in their spiritual walk. It's overconfidence. Right? We begin to think that we can handle everything on our own. You know, we begin to think we're strong enough that, that we're never going to fail. Right? We begin to say that that would never happen to me. You know, in, anytime you hear about somebody else's stumbling, we go and say, that can never happen to me. And what you're really doing there is you're setting yourself up for failure. Right? I mean, it's a truly dangerous road to go down because, again, you're setting yourself up for this massive failure. I mean, being honest, anybody in this room, all of us in this room, given the right situation, we're all capable of any sin. Right? The Bible says that the heart is deceitful. But that means that we lie to ourselves just as much as we lie to everyone else. I mean, thinking about it, I can't even figure out why I do what I do, let alone why you do what you do. Right? I mean, you should never say, I could never fall for that. That's called overconfidence, and that's the first step in falling away from God. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Right? Proverbs 16, 18 says kind of the same thing. It says pride goes before destruction. Right? A haughty spirit before a fall. Right? So I want to give you a little acrostic too. Uh, it's kind of cheesy, but I like it. Right? It's for the word ego. Right? And ego stands for edging God out. Right? When I get overconfident, right? when I let ego into my life, I'm edging God out. And then I'm just starting this, this backing away and heading down this slippery slope that is falling away from Christ. And that's the power that this overconfidence can have in our life. And so the second cause, the second cause of kind of slipping away from God is laziness. Right? Laziness. That's, that's one that's totally relatable for all of us, right? I mean, we see this in the story even of Peter's denial. Right? What happens is it's what I really believe happens not only in our spiritual walk, but really in our, in our everyday life. 
right? Every job, relationship, every situation we ever come across in our life, what happens is we get comfortable, right? We just get comfortable in these situations. I mean, think about it. All, all you married couples, do you still act the same way you did when you were dating, right? Do you still talk the same? Do you still go on the same dates, you know, flirt the same way, whatever it is? Not normally because we get comfortable in these relationships, right? What about a job? You know, like the first week or, or month or even year in your job, you're trying to make a really good impression, like you're working your butt off to, to make this good impression. And then what happens, right? You get comfortable. Maybe you start slacking off in, in an area that's here or there, right? I mean, it happens all the time. We get lethargic. We get lazy. And it's the same with our spiritual walk, right? All these good habits that we used to have when we first became a Christian, like praying every day, right? Or reading our Bible or serving or being in a community of like a small group, right? We just get too busy for it. You know, we say, maybe I don't have the time right now. I'll, I'll get back to that a little bit later. And then we just never do. Right? Again, it's the I'm too busy excuse. Right? But really, I mean, when you do this, and at some point you're going to realize that you're doing this. We all realize when we get a little lazy, you know, it may be kind of harder to see in our spiritual walk than in other areas of our life because there's not been any like drastic consequences immediately. I mean, there could be. But when we do this, we should see it as a warning light. Right? Because we can see it actually happening in the next scene with Peter and his story. Right? He got tired. He got lazy. You know, and being tired both physically, being worn down physically and spiritually is what led to his laziness. Right? A little bit later, there's, or a little bit before, there's a story in the Bible where it says Jesus took Peter, James, and John, who were three of his, his dudes, right? his disciples. He took them into the garden and said, I want you guys to stay here with me you know, and pray with me. Right? Just stay here and pray with me for a while. Right? That was the night he actually knew he was going to be betrayed and arrested. And so he says, can you guys just be with me? Just watch and pray. And so he goes off to pray by himself for a little bit and comes back and all three dudes are sleeping. All three of them. So he wakes them up and he says, come on, guys. You know, I'm going to go off again. Just again, stay here and pray for me a little bit. And he comes back and they're all asleep again. Right? I mean, verse 37, he comes back and says, couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? Right? And there's a principle here. It's that when you get tired, you're setting yourself up for a major temptation, right? When you get tired, you're setting yourself up for this laziness, right? I mean, it's way more difficult to do the right thing than it is the wrong thing, right? It's easy to do the wrong thing, and it's often the easiest way, right? But if you really want to do the right things in life, the way God wants you to, it takes energy, right? It takes intentionality and stamina, Right? Because when you're trying to do the right thing all the time, you're going to get tired. You're going to get tired emotionally and, and physically and spiritually. All these things are going to weigh down on you in every area of your life. And if you don't know how to recharge yourself, right? if you don't know how to recharge yourself emotionally and spiritually and physically, all the fatigue is going to set into you. Right? All the fatigue is going to become a warning light that something's going wrong. Something's out of order. And when you become this tired, that's when you become the most vulnerable to temptation in your life. And so we've got our first two rules. We've got overconfidence. Uh, we've got laziness. The third cause of falling away from Christ is fear of disapproval. Right? Fear of disapproval. We're worried about what other people will think. Or we're afraid they'll reject us, that they won't accept us, or, or that they'll make fun of us or ridicule us, or you know, that we may just be harassed. We're afraid of being disapproved of. That's exactly what happened to Peter. Right? After Jesus was arrested, it says in Mark 15, uh, 54, it says, Peter followed him at a distance. Now just imagine that picture. 
Jesus has been arrested. He's being led away. And Peter decided he would wanted to follow him at a distance, right? Just far enough away that he wouldn't be associated with Jesus. Do you ever do that? Right? Do you ever try to follow Jesus at a distance? You know, do you ever say, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ, but you know, let's, let's not get crazy about it. Like, let's not get radical. I don't want to be too red hot for God. Somebody might think I'm a nutcase. Right? I, I believe in Jesus, yes, but I want to follow him at a distance. Right? It's like that old statement, you know, if, if Christianity became illegal in America, right, and, they're, and they're arresting all the Christians, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Right? I mean, would your neighbors, would they know you're a Christian? Or would they just figure you're some weirdo who's gone every Sunday morning? Right? One of the signs that you can know that you're beginning to slip away from God is that you begin to become ashamed of him. You begin to become ashamed of God. You want to follow him at a distance, right? Maybe you're ashamed to put your Bible on your desk at work. Uh, maybe you're ashamed to pray over a meal, a meal in public. You know, what, what are all these people going to think of me if I do that? Right? I mean, they might think you're a believer. Oh, no. Right? I mean, you're ashamed to be seen with a group of Christians. You're ashamed to even be known as a Christian. So you try to keep it a secret. And there's so many examples of this in the Bible. And that's what we're saying. It's a common thing. It happens to all of us all the time. There's so many examples of this in the Bible. And there's so many different uh, references to not being ashamed, to not being scared of what other people think. At Proverbs 29, 25 says, fearing people is a dangerous trap. Right? When you start worrying about what other people think, that's when you're headed for trouble. Right? It's a snare and it's going to catch up to you. Mark 8, 38 says, uh, Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him before the holy angels and my Father in heaven. Right? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me here on earth, I'm going to be ashamed of you in heaven. And that's some pretty powerful stuff right there, right? I mean, Revelations 21, 8 even lists cowardice in the same category as murderers and adulterers. That's how serious it is to be embarrassed of God. And when you're worried about the disapproval of others, again, you just get on that slippery slope of falling away from God. Right? So we've got, now we've got overconfidence, we've got laziness, we've got fear of disapproval. The fourth and final reason is simply convenience. Right? We want to have faith, but we want to have a comfortable faith. Right? We want it to fit in our schedule. Like, sure, I want, I want to be a Christian as long as it doesn't cramp my style and what I got going on. Right? I mean, look what happened to Peter. It says he followed Jesus at a distance, and then it goes on to say that he sat with the guards and warned himself at the fire. I mean, how crazy is that? Jesus had just been arrested by these guys. This is Peter, one of the 12 original disciples, Jesus' best friends, handpicked by Jesus to be one of his disciples. You know, Jesus has been led away, about to be tortured and executed, and here's Peter sitting by the fire with the same guys that are going to do that the next day. He's just hanging out with him. He just wants to be one of the guys. He just wants to be comfortable. You know, I can see him sitting there. He's just saying, I want to just enjoy tonight. Right? I don't want to be cold. I, don't, I want to be warm. I want to be accepted. Right? I just want to be a part of the gang here. Right? I just want to be one of the guys, one of the girls. I want to follow Christ, but only when it's convenient for me. Right? But if it's not convenient for me, you can, you can just go ahead and forget that. I'm not about when it's not convenient for me. 
I'm, Peter's just saying, I'm going to go back and I'm, I'm going to hang out with the guys. I don't want to be with other disciples who are worrying. I don't want to be known to be with Christ. I just want to hang out and be comfortable. But if you try to enjoy the world's campfire, that's when you're going to get burned. Right? You're not in the same kingdom, the same world, the same lifestyle anymore when this is your goal. And so the question becomes, how does God respond to these kind of people? Right? When, a, when a Christian sins, does he lose his salvation? Right? When a Christian sins, does he go to hell? How does God respond? He responds the way he always does. Right? The way he always responds to his children. With grace. Romans 8.1 says, There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Right? That first word, no, in that verse is really the strongest possible negative in the Greek language. It means no, like no means never, never not in a million years. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And what you have to see there is that this isn't a promise for everybody. It's not saying anybody can do whatever they want and not have condemnation. It says for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a genuine believer in Christ, you've put your trust in Christ, you've accepted his grace, that's when there's no condemnation. And so what does that even mean? It simply means that you don't lose your salvation when you sin. When you mess up, you don't lose your salvation. And aren't you glad for that? I mean, think about it. If you could lose your salvation every time you mess up, we would be screwed. We would lose it every single minute of every single day. I mean, I mean, think about it. Say you lived your entire life for Jesus. You were just amazing your entire life, did everything he wanted you to do. And then the last five minutes of your life rolls around and you blow it. Guess you're out of luck, right? I mean, you lived this amazing life in the last five minutes, you blew it, now you're going to hell. You would live in fear your entire life. I mean, if you were saved by your works, what you do, you could lose it if you just stopped working but you're not saved that way. It says there is no condemnation when a Christian sins. And another important thing to note though, you have to notice, it doesn't say there are no consequences. Right? It says no condemnation. But there are a lot of consequences. Right? When I get out of God's will for my life, when, when I blow it, or when I intentionally don't do what God wants me to do, like when I ignore Him and His will, there are major consequences in my life. It's the same thing for you. Every time you disobey God, every time you ignore his will, every time you don't put Jesus first, or you lose his instructions, that's when you lose out. You hurt yourself. You hurt the other people around you. I mean, think, really, when a Christian sins, what happens? You lose your fellowship with Christ. You lose your credibility and your effectiveness here on earth. You lose rewards in heaven you lose your joy here on earth. You know, I'm convinced that the miserable people, miserable people on earth, they're not unbelievers. They're believers who know better, but still act like unbelievers. Right? Those are the miserable people walking around this earth. Right? But you do not lose your salvation. You have to understand you don't lose your salvation when you mess up. And really, why? Why does God not just kick us out? Right? When we blow it, why doesn't God just say, you had your chance, you knew better, you're out of my family? Why doesn't God reject believers 
when we sin for five simple reasons. And they really encompass what grace is all about. Like the first reason that God doesn't reject us when we sin is that because his love is unconditional. Right? God doesn't say, I love you if. Right? He doesn't say, I love you if you're good enough. I love you if you're perfect, whatever it is. There's not an if behind it. He doesn't say, I love you because. Right? He, doesn't say, he doesn't say, I love you because you did this or because you're going to do that. He just says, I love you, period. End of story. Right? Some of you need to write this down this morning. It's that like God will never stop loving you. Right? God will never stop loving me because I am a recipient of his grace. Lamentations 3.22 says, God's compassion never ends. It is only his mercies that have kept us from complete destruction. Right? God's compassion never ends. God does not reject us when we sin because his love is unconditional. Reason number two that God doesn't reject us when we sin, because my salvation isn't based on my performance. Right? God doesn't reject us when we sin because our salvation is not based on what we do. Romans 9.16 says, it doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Right? You have to understand this. The only way that you have any hope of getting into heaven is by the grace of God. Right? I mean, you can't learn your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. Right? You can't bluff your way into heaven. You can't lie your way into heaven. The only way you get into heaven is by accepting the gift of grace from God. Right? If you don't get into the grace of Jesus, or if you don't get into heaven on the grace of Jesus, quite simply put, you're out of luck. You're not going to get there. It's perfect, and we're not. So it's the only way. Reason number three that God doesn't reject believers when we sin is because Jesus has already taken my punishment. Jesus has already taken my punishment if I've accepted and I'm a believer. In America, we have what's called the law of double jeopardy. Right? It says that we can't be tried for the same crime twice. Right? You cannot be convicted for the same crime twice. You cannot be charged with, the, with your sins because Jesus has already paid the price for them. Right? People are not punished for the same crime. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and took the payment for our sin, took the punishment for my sins and for yours. Right? He took them all. He paid the price. He took our rap sheet. He served our term. He took the death penalty because it, the Bible says that the wages for sin is death. And so he paid it. He died on the cross for us. Right? And you ask, what sins did he die for? He died for all of them. Right? The ones that we're going to commit in our future that we don't even know about, he died for those. Right? The ones that are in our past that weigh us down, he died for those too. Every, each and every sin that we have committed or are going to commit, he's already paid the price for them. Right? That's why on the cross he cried out, it is finished. Right? It's paid in full. I mean, think about this. Can you imagine God coming to you right, the next time you sin? And he says, by the way, what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, that wasn't good enough for this one. Right? Maybe before, that was, that was good enough to cover those Right, but now you're going to be charged. You're going to be punished. That doesn't make sense, does it? 
That's double jeopardy. If God punished you, he would be saying that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't good enough. And that's just not true. I don't know how to say it any clearer than this. If you are a Christian and you receive the grace of God, God does not punish you when you sin because Jesus has already paid it on the cross. I know that what some people are thinking, it says Jesus has already paid for all the things that I'm going to do. And the answer is yes. And so that means that people, it kind of gives them a license to do whatever they want, right? In their head, they think, oh, these punishments have already been paid for, so I can do whatever I want. And honestly, that's just an abuse of grace. I mean, think about no real Christian, no genuine believer who has experienced a relationship with God and has allowed God into their heart and to work on them is ever going to abuse or pervert grace in that way. Right? Grace is not a license to say, I know I'm all forgiven, so I'll go ahead and I'll keep doing whatever I want to do. Right? I'm forgiven, therefore I'll go ahead and keep having this affair. You know, I know I'm forgiven, therefore I'll just go ahead and continue to neglect my family or cheat at work or, or drink excessively, be lazy, get angry. All these things that we do. You know, they say, I'm forgiven, so I'll do what I want. This is an abuse of grace. And while he won't punish us, he will discipline us. Right? Just like a father disciplining his child, he does not do it to punish, but to teach. Right? To prepare us for the future. Because again, our punishment's already been taken care of. Notice what the Bible says in 1 John 2.2. 2. It says, when Jesus served as a sacrifice for our sins, he solved the sin problem for God not only ours, but the whole world's. Right? He solved it right there. So again, God doesn't reject me when I sin because Jesus has already paid the price. He's already taken the punishment. Reason number four for why God doesn't reject us when we sin. Because Jesus understands my human weaknesses. Right? Jesus is sympathetic. He's understanding. He knows my frailties. He knows my faults. He knows what makes me tick. He knows how I am wired. Right? One of the most beautiful truths in the Bible, or really the most beautiful truths in all of the Christian life, is that you have to realize God is patient with you. Right? He doesn't, he's not an impatient God. He doesn't just get impatient because he wants to. Hebrews 4.15 says he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same temptations that we do, yet he did not sin. Right? When Jesus was here on earth, he experienced every temptation known to man. He has says, I understand where you are because I came to earth and I lived as a human in human flesh for 33 years. So he's sympathetic. Right? He understands your weaknesses. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be tempted. So he doesn't reject us when we sin because he understands our human weaknesses. The last reason that God doesn't reject us when we sin is because God doesn't hold on to grudges. Right, Psalm 103, uh, in New, New Living Translation, it says, God will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He has not punished us for all our sins, nor does he deal with us as we deserve. He is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Those who fear him. That means those who respect him. Those who have put their trust in him. Those who have committed to him. And those who are in his family. 
And this is the true benefit of being a believer. Right? God doesn't just hold a grudge towards me again because he wants to. If you are a believer, God is not angry with you. The answer for why that is true is, again, because the punishment's already been taken care of on the cross. And I know some people here this morning are probably thinking, you know, you don't know how far I've fallen. You don't know what I've done. And, and no, you're right. I don't know what you've done. But God does. Right, you may think you've strayed too far. And if you strayed far away from God by one giant step or just a bunch of little steps, this is what God says to you. It's in Jeremiah 3.22. He says, Come back to me, you unfaithful children, and I will forgive you for being unfaithful. But again, you know, you may be thinking, I've gone so far down this slope, there's just no way back for me. It's just going to take too much effort, you know, too much energy. I've gone too far. Really, you're wrong. You're very wrong. And no matter how far you've run, no matter what you've done to distance yourself from God, it's only one step back. Right? It's not this big, long, drawn-out process where you have to jump through hoops. It's not going to take years to get back into fellowship with God. It's just one step. And I think the problem a lot of times is that we really don't understand the difference in this relationship. We don't understand the difference between fellowship and relationship. Right? Fellowship is our current status. Relationship is our permanent position. Right? Think about it. Can I be out of fellowship with my wife and still be in a, uh, married to her? Of course you can. Can a child be out of fellowship with his parents and yet still be their child? Of course. When you sin, you don't lose the relationship. You lose the fellowship. Right? I mean, those of you who are parents of teenagers or grown children, you probably, maybe unfortunately, know this too well. Right? I mean, you try to raise your kids to make the right decisions and do the right things, but sometimes it just happens to where the child rebels. Right? You may have a child that acts like they want absolutely nothing to do with you. And no matter how hard you try, they continue to make decision after decision that distances themselves both from you and from God. But nothing will ever change the fact that they are your child. Nothing will ever change that. The fellowship may be damaged, but the relationship will always be there. Right? Because you, they were born into your family, and they can't be unborn. And when you become a believer in Christ, you are born again into God's family, and you cannot be unborn. Right? So again, the fellowship with God has been broken, but the relationship is still there. And you're really only one step away from returning. So what should I do when I sin? Right, one word. One word answer. Return. Right, come back to Christ. It's that simple. I blew it and now I'm back. That's all there is to it. Jeremiah 15, 19 says, If you return to me, I will restore you so you can continue to serve me. Right, no matter what you've done, God says in Isaiah 118, he says, I don't care what you've done or how far you've fallen. Right, the verse actually says, no matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can take it out and make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Right, that ought to be the Clorox 
you know, the bleach verse of the Bible. It doesn't matter what you've done, God can handle it. And so looking back at our story of Peter, it, it's so cool because there really is a happy ending for Peter. I mean, think if you ever thought there was a sin that was unforgivable in the eyes of Jesus Christ, you would think it would be denying him three days on the day that he is going to be arrested and then tortured and crucified. But I mean, even before it happened, Jesus already knew what Peter was going to do. He said to Peter in the upper room, Satan has desired to sift you, but I have prayed for you. And when you have returned, strengthen the brothers. He knew he would return. Christ knew Peter would come back. Jesus was basically saying, I know you're going to fall away, Peter. But when you come back, strengthen the brothers. Jesus knew that Peter's ministry would be way more effective after his denial of Christ than before. Right? And that's exactly what happened. Peter went on to write the books of the Bible called First and Second Peter. And he even contributed uh, with a relative in the Gospel of Mark. He was way more effective after his denial, and Christ knew that would happen. But there are two major incidents in, incidences in Peter's life that happened after his denial. Right, the Bible tells us in Mark 16, uh, it was on Easter morning that three women, three women went to the tomb. You know, the stone was rolled away, Christ was gone, and an angel was sitting on top of the stone. And the angel said, go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Right, Jesus knew that Peter was devastated. He knew that he was humiliated, uh, ashamed, depressed, right? Peter thought he could never face Christ again for what he had done. But then Jesus goes in and throws in a special personal recognition just for Peter, right? It's like he was saying, it's okay, Peter. You know, it's okay. All is forgiven. I'm going to give you a shout out on the biggest day in the history of the universe. He's just saying, come on home. And that's the grace of Jesus Christ. That simple phrase, come on home. I've never stopped loving you. And then later in the book of John, it's actually John 21, it's one of the many incidences where Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection. And so Christ was standing on the coast of a lake, and Peter and some fishermen were out on the lake fishing. And they see Jesus on shore, and before they can even get close enough you know, to dock or whatever, Peter go ahead and dives into the water and starts swimming to shore. And Jesus has a little one-on-one -on -one conversation with Peter there. And it's his first encounter to talk personally with Peter. And so Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, Lord, that I love you. So again, Jesus says, Peter, do you really, really love me? Right? Peter says a second time, Lord, you know that I love you. And then for a third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me? And for a third time, Peter says, you know, Lord, that I love you. So what's going on there? I mean, it's just amazing. Jesus was giving Peter three times to affirm what he had denied three times before. Right? He denied Christ three times before, and now he's giving him a chance to affirm that he does love him three times now. I mean, don't you see, that's the grace of God. Right? You may think that God's forgotten you, but he hasn't. The good shepherd leaves the 99 to go out in search of the one. Like, he knows you've fallen away. And again, if you have either by one giant step, like one big humongous step, or a bunch of small, petty little steps, 
you know, where you just kind of slipped away from Christ, you're not as close as you used to be. All of us who've done that need to pray this prayer that David actually prayed when he came back to God. Right? Psalm 51, David prayed after he committed adultery. He says, restore to me again the joy of your salvation. Right? Notice, David didn't have to pray, God, restore to me my salvation, because he hadn't lost it. Right? He had lost the joy. And some of you have too today. A lot of us have. And so I'd like to kind of close with a time of, of a personal evaluation. And I want you just to consider a few questions. Right, was there ever a time in your life, you know, where you were closer to God than you are right now? Right, if so, what happened? How did you allow the slippage, the backslide? You know, was it a career? Was it a relationship? You know, a hobby, TV, social media? Right, what got in the way of your relationship with Christ? What caused it to go stale? Right, are you just heartlessly going through the motions of, that is Christianity? Has duty replaced delight in your spiritual walk? Right? I mean, have you stopped caring about the salvation of those people who don't know Christ around you? Right, when was the last time you shared you know, a positive word of Christ with someone who's seeking answers? You know, have you been ashamed of your relationship with Christ? You know, have you been putting something off maybe? What is it that God's, you know, been wanting you to do that you've been procrastinating? You know, for a lot of people, I think it's actually baptism, right? Making that public profession of faith. Right? And we've got you covered here at Coastal. We actually have a beach baptism coming up soon. I think it's June 10th. You can actually sign up right there on the back of your Connect card for that. And we've already got like 20 people that are all excited to, to share this, you know, public profession of their faith with their church family. Right? I mean, think about it. It's just, it's going to be an amazing time of celebration of life change. And this life change is only brought about because of God's restoring grace. Right? We're all dead in our sins, but he restores us. And again, what better way to celebrate that than being surrounded by your church family at the beach getting baptized? But you know, maybe for some of you today, it's, it's more about the smaller details, right? What is it that you used to do, but now you've slacked off on? Was it reading your Bible, praying, tithing? Is it serving? It's just possible that that's why you lost your joy, right? Maybe you just haven't known what to do you know, you're just, you're just sitting there saying, I'm so ashamed. I'm afraid to come back to my full commitment with God. You know, I don't know what I have to do, and that's, that's kind of why you're nervous to really jump in. You think you're going to have to jump through all these hoops and, and go through all these different things to get back to God. But that's not it. Right? It's just one step. It's just one step back. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I know, uh, I know there are a lot of people uh, here who've been really just fighting a war in their minds, God. I, you know, they're fighting, they know the right thing to do, uh, but they've just been fighting it. Right? They want to do the convenient thing or, or the popular or the easy thing. Uh, now, and now they just lost that spark. I mean, they're, they're just ashamed. You know, there are others here that are maybe filled with a regret for the things that they've done. They've been afraid to return to you. 
You know, help them to experience the freedom of restoring grace in their life. Help us all to know the power of your grace and really what it can look like for us in our lives, you know, when we fully, when we welcome you fully. You know, for those that are here today that are struggling with this, uh, I just encourage you to pray this with me this morning. Pray, Jesus, I know I've wandered away. You know I've wandered away. My heart has started to grow cold. You know, my level of love and commitment to you is not like it used to be. But I want to thank you for your unconditional love. You know, I thank you that you've never stopped loving me. I really want to thank you that my salvation isn't based on my performance. All right, Jesus, it's, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. You know, but I thank you for taking the punishment for my sins all those years ago. And I thank you, Jesus, that you understand and sympathize with my human weaknesses. And I want to thank you that you don't hold on to grudges and that you're not angry with me. You know, by grace, God, I ask you to take me back today. I come home to your, your open, loving arms, and I want to follow you by grace. Today, I want to come back home. And this morning, you know, if you haven't ever taken the opportunity to, to accept Jesus Christ, I, I invite you to pray this. You know, say, Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all, right, but I accept what you did for me. Your forgiveness, your grace, your restoring grace. I recognize what you did for me 2,000 years ago on the cross. I want to be a part of your family. I want to follow you. In your name I pray, amen. You've been listening to a message from Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.